0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Adra Canada Insider podcast. We're so glad that you have joined us again for more stories from the field where Adra works. We're planning to take you today, in spirit at least, to the amazing country of Mongolia. First of all, let's meet our guests. Who do we have around our table today?
1: Hey, guys, it's Kayla again.
2: And Michael.
1: And Heather.
0: Thanks for joining us again today and uh, one of the reasons why we have Heather back with us today is uh, she's going to be our guest and she's going to tell us about her recent journey to Yay! the most beautiful country,
2: Mongolia. And we're all kind of jealous. <laughs> 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 I've been
0: to Mongolia three or four times and I have to say that it is just amazing. I okay. don't know what you saw when you were there, Heather, but uh, those rolling hills and the beautiful green steps, do they call them? Mm-hmm. It looks like steeps, right, the way they spell it? Yeah. But it's steps. And uh, the one thing that I remember the most about it is that uh, there were no fences. Is You could drive your four-wheel drive. We had a, 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 some kind of a Russian Jeep, I think it was, that we were going around in.
2: Was that a little light um, blue one? That yeah. Yeah. In yeah.
1: It's one of my most favorite Adger pictures.
2: <laughs> but I, I do need to revise my statement. Kayla and I are jealous that you guys have both been to Mongolia. Uh, yes. And your dad's been to Mongolia <clears throat> yeah. too, right Kayla?
1: did my dad go with you one time?
2: He may have gone with another connections group. Or oh, okay. Another. I know he
1: went with James. Yeah. So yeah. The two of them have a lot of inside jokes from that show. Oh my goodness, <laughs> of course. <laughs>
2: i sorry, Frank, you were talking about no the, your, your, your no fences yeah. and your blue Russian Jeep. The vehicle that we went hundreds
0: of miles in didn't really follow a road. Sometimes there would be a trail. There were actually many trails. If you wanted to go in a little different direction, you could just follow that trail. And you didn't really have to worry about hitting a fence anywhere because there just weren't any. People are mostly nomadic herders and they just go wherever there is grass. They don't really bother about ownership of the land. Wherever they can find a place for their animals to graze, that's where they'll stop and set up their gear. It's just an amazing place to visit.
1: hmm I would agree. I was so happy to get to go. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> you guys aren't helping my
0: jealousy at all. <laughs> so Heather, tell us about your experience in Mongolia. Why did you go again?
1: Uh, professionally <laughs> personally I laid claim to this trip because I have always wanted to go to Mongolia and when I started at Aja Canada I was so excited to find out that we have had projects there for over 20 years wow and I just I've just been biding my time until my turn came up to mm. go and I trampled Michael <laughs> to get the trip for this year And I went because we at the time had two projects going on, one in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar and one way far out west in an area called Bayan Ulgi. And these two projects are both agricultural projects. So we are teaching people who were formerly nomads to grow their own food. Mm. And on the surface that might sound a little bit like, here, let us decide for you the best way for you to live your life. But when I got there, I learned very quickly from them themselves that they were so excited to learn how to grow their own vegetables. And some of them were even growing berries, so some kind of fruit. Since they could no longer be nomads, this was a way that they could feed their families. This was a way that they could have an income that they did not have before.
0: So why were they no longer able yeah, to Yeah, good question. Nomads.
1: So in Mongolia, they too are experiencing the effects of... Um, what do we call it now? Climate? climate change. Do we call it climate change? Yes. So it's not
0: global warming, it's just climate change.
1: Climate change, change okay. Yeah. So they're feeling the effects of it, and what that means for them is that their winters are much harsher, and for many of them, their herds that they would follow around just did not survive mm. the winters. They froze to death.
0: I remember when I visited Mongolia, The ADRA director there at the time, Llewellyn Juby, explained to me what had happened. The country of Mongolia, as you know, was under the control of the Soviet Union for many years, from I think the 1920s, and people had uh, primarily been working on these collective farms growing wheat. And so when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, people suddenly didn't have any occupation, and uh, so a great majority of the people returned to the life ways of their ancestors to become nomadic herders. And while most of them were very enthusiastic about returning to the ways of their ancestors, a lot of them didn't necessarily have the skills that were needed to be successful as nomadic herders and so this was part of the problem and and what happened was they had three winters fairly close together there in the 90s and early 2000s that had a winter system that was called a ZUD and what that is is a period during the winter where probably through climate change they had some very warm days and the snow would melt, but then it would dip down and become very cold again and cause a a large layer of ice to form over the pasture. And as a result, the animals would not be able to paw down or dig down to get at the grass to be able to eat. And yes, uh, as a result, many of them starve to death that people would lose all of their animals in just one season.
1: And I think of it as the equivalent back here in Canada, you know, we lose our jobs. We lose everything in the bank and maybe we didn't lose our house, but we don't get to stay in it much longer. That's pretty much the situation these people are facing. And so they moved to urban centers, especially the capital, Ulaanbaatar, um, with the hope that there's a better chance for them there. I asked some of them if they felt like it was better, and they said it's just different. Still challenging, and but different. And the Mongolian government is doing what it can to help these people. So when they come to Ulaanbaatar, for instance, uh, they can register to receive a plot of land. And then once they get that land, they can do whatever they want with it. So many of them start with building uh, or setting up a gare, which here in Canada we call them yurts. Um, So it's just those round tents. And then...
0: like little pills from the from the air yeah. when flying over them they yeah they're white bon- or, they
1: definitely you know. stand out against <laughs> the countryside. and then uh, as they are able to you know as they save money or make their own bricks they build actual brick homes to live mm. in because that's warmer to live in during the winters and then they do whatever work they can find you know most of them are seasonal workers So it just depends on what's available out there in the market and it's not something they can rely on. So when ADRA started this project, many of the people were barely scraping by and they lived off of bread Mm -hmm. and maybe potatoes. And if they could afford it, the cheapest cuts of meat possible. Horse meat? I don't ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that Um. is on the menu in Mongolia.
2: (laughs) 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 Wasn't there also horse milk? Uh,
0: Yeah. Yes, mare's milk, we call it.
1: Fermented (gasps) sometimes. When
0: you actually go inside a gear to people's homes, they will offer you different products that have been made from this mixture of different animals' milk. So they will take the milk of sheep, goats, mare's milk, the, the yak, and they mix it all together in, in one big bowl. They actually pasteurize it over their fire you would say and but then they make many different products with it so when you go in it's very typical for them to offer you a kind of a little wafer of some kind that is made from this dried milk. They also try and get you to try their fermented milk as well.
2: <laughs> so Heather did you get any of these uh, gifts? Well, this food well, food gifts?
1: Y- yes. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, everywhere I go, I learn something from the people that we're working with and uh, something that I try to implement in my own life. So visiting these people in Ulaanbaatar and Bayanolgi, going to their homes, I know that they are not the wealthiest. I know that, you know, they still have to think about rationing their resources to make sure that there's enough to last the whole year. Yet yeah, every single time when I went into their homes, they had a spread set out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was just some sliced up cucumbers, which later I learned for them is like gold. That's like their most favorite vegetable. It's reserved for special occasions and weddings and things. And now they're growing them in their own greenhouses, in their own yards. So for them, it was such a joy to be able to offer a guest, especially a foreign guest, this very prized vegetable. So sometimes it was just simply sliced cucumbers. Sometimes it was those mysterious milk products. <laughs> One thing I saw that I was very hopeful was a scone because I love scones. It was not a scone. <laughs> it was a crispy, crunchy, sour milk thing. I, I, I have no words for describing it beyond that. <laughs> But they also had homemade butters and they love bread in mongolia which is great for me because i adore bread Mm. and uh so homemade butters to put on their homemade bread and um so that
2: sounds good yeah yeah.
1: and then for some of them who were learning to grow what they call sea buckthorn berry um, or even some of them had raspberries They would turn those into jams, you know, to preserve them. Mm -hmm. Even after the harvest, they could have it throughout the year. And so they would offer us that as well. And they have a saying in Mongolia that says, give what you can. So they're very hospitable. Yeah. And that touched my heart because, like I said, I went there to their homes knowing that they don't have a lot to offer. And yet they each gave what they could. And so that's something I try to remind myself all the time. Give what you can, Mm because often we can feel like I don't have anything that I can give or whatever I give isn't really going to make a difference, whether it's a donation, whether it's my time, whether it's my talent, but we can still give what we can. Mm -hmm. So that's something I I picked up from my time in Mongolia. (laughs) Um, But back to the project, yeah. So we're teaching them to grow their own vegetables.
0: Have they not been growing vegetables before?
1: Some of them had made attempts. And they were not Why very successful. Why is it successful. difficult there? In Ulaanbaatar, it's partially because the soil is hard to work with, but at least there is soil there. And then the harsh winters, of course, and the very short growing season.
2: How short is the growing season?
1: I believe it's from May to August, early August. Okay,
2: so shorter than here in Ontario. But- similar to some parts of Western, Northern Canada. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm.
1: So we are teaching them how to do different kinds of greenhouses, like passive solar greenhouses, regular greenhouses, using materials they can find there locally. And that helps to extend their growing season. And then we're also teaching them how to do composting, how to build up their soil so Mm. their soil has more nutrients and it can be more productive. And then we also have been teaching them business skills on the side where they can learn about marketing and pricing and getting their produce to markets if they are growing more than their family can consume. And then many of them are able to get an income from that as well. So that's in Ulaanbaatar. And then out west in the westernmost province called Bayanulgi, the wild, wild west of (laughs) Mongolia, um, they've already done that scale of a project and the people who had participated were so eager to take it to the next level, they asked, can we please um, do another project where we can become cooperatives? Mm -hmm. And what that essentially means is we don't want to just grow foods in our yards, we want to do commercial scale farming. And that's remarkable because the challenges out west are even more pronounced than in uh, Ulaanbaatar. Much of the soil out west is very, very poor. And in some places, they even classify it as dead.
2: Dead soil. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's extremely dry out there and it gets extremely cold.
2: Well, it's on the, the edge of the Gobi Desert, is it not?
1: Uh, the Gobi Desert's to the southern part of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, And then the western part are the Altai Mountains, very Mm. high mountains that border between them, China and Russia, I believe. So you get these high winds, you have the alpine climate and the dry, rocky terrain, Mm. and uh, they just... They face some real challenges, but I got to visit some of their cooperative plots. There are eight registered, officially registered cooperatives in Bayan Olgi now with this project. They have their logos, they have access to financing from banks, they have access to contracts with restaurants and markets and just a lot more opportunity to build their business, mm. um, as it were. And uh, they, their first year, they went in to prepare the plots for planting. And they have old communist-era Russian tractors. Mm. And They're still working? The tractors work, but they were not strong enough to work on the fields. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they were trying to clear the big rocks and things and you know, get the, the ground ready for planting and the, the tractors just couldn't do it. So then the people went out there with their own hands and cleared these large plots of land and prepared them mm. for planting. Wow. Each plot has its own well. Some of them are close to a river that runs through the area. So then they would, got permission to set up irrigation systems. So they have water and uh, they did their first planting. Everything was actually growing. They were on cloud nine because their neighbors and their communities had told them they were insane to do this because everybody knows things don't grow in Bayanulgi. Mm but there they were, they were growing. Wow. But then that year there was a torrential rain and everything flooded. Oh. And people went out there to their plots and they were building their own dams with their own hands trying mm. to save their plots, but almost all of them were flooded. And instead of throwing their hands up in the air though, they waited for the water to recede. And then they're like, well, we still have some time in this growing season, let's plant again. Oh. So they planted again and they still got a harvest. It wasn't as good as the one that drowned, but they got a harvest and it was enough to lift their morale and their belief that we can do this. So I was there during their second season, their second growing season at the end. So they had done a lot of their harvesting by the time I got there, but they were still bringing in carrots and turnips and beets and cucumbers and tomatoes. Wow. And they even started in their greenhouses experimenting. They're like, hey, we've learned all this about growing. Let's try to grow something really interesting. Let's try watermelon. And some of them were actually very successful. I mean, they're little, but they're watermelons in Mongolia. <laughs> and sweet peppers and zucchinis. And uh, they have their own little market a booth where they sell their organic Mongolian grown produce, which I also learned is extremely important to Mongolians. You know, here in, in North America and Canada, we think of buying organic as like, you know, kind of the hoity toity thing to do, or yeah. wouldn't it be nice if I could afford that? You know, we kind of make a nod to the ideas behind it. But at the end of the day, you buy what you can afford. Um, in Mongolia, it's the same but it's also the same that they want to buy organic. They don't trust non-organic mm. produce. And Because they don't
0: know what kind of chemical fertilizer- Exactly, yeah, <laughs> they, they
1: just don't trust it. And, Pesticides. And so that gives our farmers a competitive edge mm. because it is organic and it's grown in Mongolia. So I thought that was really neat that some of the same
2: The buy local fad is is, yeah. is just as big <laughs> there as it is here.
1: It's not it's not a luxury for the first world, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Like it's a Sentiment that shared.
2: Were you able to figure out how it was? Because you said that the soil was dead.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: How were they able to grow anything in in this quote unquote dead soil?
1: So I wish I was an agronomist. Right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I understand you're not an agronomist. We have excellent and amazing agronomists in these projects who are, uh, many of them, from the area where they are working. And um, from what I observed and what they told me, they just teach them how to build that soil. So with composting, okay. um, they have lots of hay, like mm-hmm. past, pasture grass. So they cut that and then they use that to, and turn it into soil as well. So it takes time. And then...
2: Fertilizer from manure and stuff Yeah, as well.
1: yeah. There's plenty of that around.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Figure with all the pastoral animals.
1: Yeah. And then um, instead of insecticides and pesticides, if you plant certain kinds of things together, Mm -hmm. one naturally drives off the pests of the other. So I was... Mixed
0: (laughs) cropping? No, not mixed. (sighs)
1: Something
2: like that permaculture
1: we, we is the, yeah. um, <laughs> the
2: <laughs> We we tried it with our garden this year and it worked actually really well. Yeah. So yeah, this is actually something funny we've been uh taking things that I've learned here at Adra cool. that we're doing in our projects mm-hmm. and I've started putting it into my own garden and it's working. That's awesome. So, so it's a cool little I but yeah, I can't think of the name of it. Yeah. Either.
0: yeah. In, um, in our garden we tried growing some of the things that uh, they're growing in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. The amaranth especially. Mm-hmm. That uh is so nutritious and uh we didn't have a lot of success. We had a lot of uh, rain at the beginning of our season here in southern Ontario, but uh, it did uh, grow enough that we had uh, uh, several meals with it, and it was very tasty, mm. almost like eating spinach.
1: Oh, I've never had amaranth. I had it for
2: the first time last week. <laughs> and? It was
1: okay. Seems like a different experience than for yeah. family. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Maybe it was the way they prepared it. I, don't mm, know. Okay. I think there's different varieties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So for me, it was just remarkable to talk to these people and hear their stories of what their life was like before the project and how they had to decide between fuel for warmth, medicines for old age or illness and food, Mm -hmm. you know, making these kinds of tough calls. And for some of them. You know, maybe the agro-growing projects weren't enough to, you know, give them an income for the full year, but it took the pressure off of the finances they did have, because now they no longer needed to worry about paying for food. They're growing enough food for themselves. They learned through the project to preserve it. They have cellars and places to put the preserved food so it lasts a year, and so food is not an issue for them anymore. And so, what finances they do have can then be stretched further for mm-hmm. their other needs. And then in some cases, like out west with the cooperatives, they're earning more of an income than they ever thought possible. Oh, so oh. It, it, the changes are very real and uh, remarkable. It was very neat to see that.
0: When I visited in the 90s, many of them had never dreamed of growing vegetables. Yeah, They had been working on these collective farms back when they were under the Soviet Union And so people only knew what they had learned in working on these collective farms. They didn't know that it was even possible to grow vegetables. Maybe some had tried, but like I say, there wasn't a long enough growing season. But Canada came in and uh, with their specialized seeds that are designed in Canada to grow in a very short growing season, they were successful. Mm -hmm. Are they still using seeds from Canada?
1: If they are, I don't think it makes up the bulk anymore. I was reading through the project documents and there is actually a seed bank in ulaanbaatar of mongolian seeds that have proven to be good for the growing situations (laughs) i'm not a farmer i'm sorry
2: (laughs) and back to the uh planting things that are i think it's companion planting yes that's what it's called Companion planting because the vegetables are friends Yeah. yeah
1: one one lady's garden i walked into she had Vegetables everywhere and flowers everywhere. But, you know, I'm used to those being separated. Mm -hmm. Like, here's your vegetable patch. Here's your flower patch. And for her, they were all together, mixed Mm -hmm. in. And I asked about that. And she told me, you know, well, the flowers drive off the pests. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh. so And she was excited because, and many of them said that. They're like, we love the flowers and we love the trees because tree planting has been part of it because it makes things beautiful. Mm. So it isn't just you know, utilitarian, I'm doing this because I need it. Like there's still an appreciation for natural beauty that we all have again. Yeah. And, and I'll appreciate it.
2: In in this case the flowers, the natural beauty is also useful. Yeah, it's it's useful. Like,
1: it's protecting yeah. their food. <laughs> yep. So I learned a lot on this trip about gardening and farming and mm-hmm. if I had a farm, which I hope someday now
2: you can plant a garden in your backyard.
1: Yeah, now I have a backyard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah.
2: So,
0: any uh, travel adventures, hardships? What, what did we call yours, Michael, when you went adventures? to
2: Uganda? <laughs> 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 well, what is your most memorable memorable adventure? Because I think, actually, at one point you got to sleep in Aguirre.
1: Right. So, do you want to hear about sleeping in a gear or the most memorable part of the trip? Because they um, aren't actually synonymous.
2: Well, we'll go with both.
1: Well, um, so I was traveling with a group of volunteers who were helping me with the filming and the photography and the the mics and audio and things. And uh, we got to go on an excursion out west in Bayanulgi, way, way out into the middle of nowhere to stay with a Kazakh family in their ger. They are an actual nomadic family and we somehow found the spot where they were staying and they welcomed us into their ger. To get to their home, we all piled into this 1970s or 1960s Russian van. Maybe it was the same one that Frank was (laughs) in? No, he was in a cool Jeep. This was a cool van, so we could all fit inside.
2: Cool and van never go together. Well, these
1: were cool because they felt very vintage. Okay. So it was like
2: an old cool VW bus or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. The engine is down in the lower part of the car between the driver and passenger seat Okay. and then there are no shocks in this van because we off-roaded for seven hours. Oh um, Frank was talking about no fences and it made me think, yeah, also no roads. <laughs> <laughs> um, we when we left the capital of Bayanulgi called Ulgi or Ulgi City, we were on the one paved road and then we turned off and then it was just tracks and trails for about seven hours in some of the most spectacular scenery i've ever seen mountains and the steps and um
0: this is the land of genghis khan khan yeah did i say his name genghis Khan. that's how they say it over there anyway
1: yeah Yeah. and we saw you know people just walking along the way off in the distance with their camels or their yaks or their horses it sounds so
2: surreal it was. It, it just doesn't sound like something that exists in yeah. this world anymore. But
1: it does, and that's the amazing thing. Oh, I, I'm i still so
2: jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I'll get to my other thought on that in a sec. So yeah. we get to the Gare, and they have horses, they have yaks, they have sheep, they have eagles. So this particular gentleman, uh, he was an eagle hunter, which mm-hmm. was a traditional way of life for the nomads. He... What he does is he crawls up into the eagle's eyrie. I think that's how you say it. They're nests that are up really high, and he steals a female chick, and he brings the female chick home, and he raises it, and only he can talk to her. Only he can feed her because she needs to have a relationship only with him, and then do um, different trainings together. She ends up going out on horseback with him and hunting, and she will hunt out. Rabbits, foxes, wolves. Apparently, wow. they can take out a wolf. They'll, they'll like you know incapacitate the wolf, and then he comes and finishes it off. It sounds like a movie. Is, like there is so a cool. movie on it. Oh, really? <laughs> this yeah. is pretty much the
2: coolest version of hunting I've ever heard. Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 so we got to we got to hear about how he does it, and he even let us uh, hold the eagle as well. They're heavy and fierce. I have respect for eagles. And they they fed us. We stayed in their gear with them, slept on carpets on the floor in sleeping bags. And then the next day we went hiking and we got to ride on horseback. And Mongolian horses are smaller than I thought they would be. I was expecting, you know, like... If Genghis Khan rode one, surely yeah. it's like a war horse or it's something. Something from like Hollywood, yeah, big,
2: muscly horse. Yeah,
1: well, they're little muscly horses, okay. <laughs> and their saddles are something else. I grew up riding horses, and this was very different for me. So that's the night in the Gare. They were extremely kind and hospitable, and... I remember waking up really early Sunday morning and walking outside just at sunrise and all the mountain peaks around the valley that we were in were covered in snow. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lake nearby, there is a river nearby and just them sparkling and reflecting the morning light. And I'm looking around and I can see other Gares dotting the countryside Mm -hmm. and their herds kind of sprawled out everywhere. And I was just thinking, like you thought, Michael, I can't believe there are places in this world that still are like this Mm -hmm. people still live like this and then quickly on the heels of that thought was but god knows these people i couldn't tell you where i was google was not working (laughs) (laughs) i don't know the name of it i couldn't find it on a map to save my life but god knows that place and god knows those people so Mm. that was just a special personal thought for me from Mm. from that experience
2: yeah that's awesome and then now your most memorable moment.
1: Most memorable moment would be the day my husband, Michael, got to come with me. Not this Michael here with us today. Yep. My Michael. Heather's Michael. <laughs> yeah.
2: Heather's Michael. I am the <laughs> <Adrian's> Michael. Adri's Michael. <laughs> yes,
1: I'm Adri's Michael. Um, he got to come with me. And uh, we learned shortly before going to the airport to leave for Mongolia for two weeks that we are expecting our first child. Yay! <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so that was exciting but it also brought its own color to the trip the first couple of days were a breeze and then suddenly nothing was okay anymore (laughs) (laughs) you got morning sickness yeah and food aversions are a thing as well and i'd always heard about the famous pregnancy cravings i don't really crave anything but starting in mongolia i really abhor cucumbers Wow. And that I... was one
2: of their prized possessions? Yes.
1: <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so that was their favorite thank you offering. So every plot we visited, we got armloads of cucumbers. And we were like, Michael, <laughs> take it, take it.
2: <laughs> what about zucchinis? How are you No, zucchinis? they're
1: not okay either. Uh, More carrots. I think
2: I saw some pictures of some zucchinis that you guys.
1: Five kilos.
2: Five kilo zucchinis. Yeah. Oh. So
1: they have um, every year... Uh, around harvest time, our projects have uh, market festivals. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, regions have regional market festivals, and our projects get to participate in that as well. So I got the privilege of going to two, one in the West and one in Ulaanbaatar. And in both places, they had zucchini that were five to six kilograms so
2: one one zucchini yes mm. yeah. that's that's a huge zucchini. yeah
1: i was going through some of the pictures from your trip heather and i noticed that these things were humongous like something you would see like in a county fair yes. or something like it's crazy how big they are like you have some competition there michael I <laughs> with your zucchinis yeah, I, thought,
2: I thought my zucchinis growing in my garden this year were big and then heather sent those pictures mm. like, okay yeah not
1: well you're giving <laughs> you a run for your money throwing yeah. the towel. <laughs> so much for no growing
2: season uh-huh. yeah. yeah and i mean
1: to all our listeners um if you visit www.adger.ca you can go and view pictures from heather's trip uh, especially these big zucchinis that we're talking about right now it's and the proud kind of. <laughs> smiles of the growers yeah I <laughs> and but. hopefully
2: not heather's green face looking at the zucchini Yeah,
1: <laughs> no fault of theirs it's just pregnancy quirks yep. yeah so the miracles of life I thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> truly um well, that I sounds know. like an amazing
2: experience though
1: it really was yeah. and you know i said my husband got to come with me this was his first time to go on an ADRA trip and it was his first time to go to a developing country and it was really neat for me to experience it through his eyes and he just kept telling me how he couldn't get over um, the challenges these people were facing with growing and how they were overcoming those challenges mm-hmm. and You know he he would take videos with his cell phone of the ground as we were approaching a garden or approaching a plot and how it's just crunching under his feet and then he would film the transition from that Mm -hmm. to garden and you Mm -hmm. have the tops of carrots and tops of beets and (laughs) things sticking out of the ground and so for him it was just an incredible eye-opening experience. And didn't he write about this um, for the Messenger? He did. And his article will be in the January Messenger. So Okay. Stay tuned. You'll get to hear from Michael Gerbic and his trip to Mongolia in the
2: What's the name of the article?
1: I donate my wife there to Antarctica. <laughs> <Good one>. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's a good good article to mm-hmm.
1: So Any other questions on Mongolia? Did I forget anything? Did the
0: program teach them how to preserve the foods? Like once the harvest is over, how are they able to use that through the winter?
1: So part of the project is teaching them and helping them to dig cellars. And Mm -hmm. so with the cooperative plots, these are enormous cellars. Um, And then in Ulaanbaatar with the individual family growers, they have cellars either under their gear or under their house, anywhere on their plot that they could dig one. And so we teach them pickling classes. So Mm. they pickle everything and they were quite proud to share with them. Mm. And already by the time we got there, certain families were famous for pickled carrots or pickled peppers or pickled cucumbers, you know.
0: So were you okay
2: with the
1: pickles? I was until suddenly I wasn't like, there is no rhyme have, or reason for this. She would have liked
2: them better if there was ice cream. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the sad well, thing, isn't that it a pregnancy
2: was, thing, pickles and ice cream? Yeah,
1: but not for me. <laughs> I missed out on that. The sad thing is truly tragic. I am a pickle monster normally, and I was in the land of specially pickled cucumbers, and I didn't get to enjoy it. But anyway, yes, we do teach them to preserve their foods, and then we help them make arrangements for a, a proper place to store that. And then, you know, you, you take into account dating it and how long is its shelf life, when to use by, and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So that's definitely part of the project. That's wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was so exciting.
0: <laughs> okay. As we move on on our podcast list... Let's see, the next item that we usually do is have our guest answer one of these questions. What was your first encounter with poverty? Any travel tips? Most bizarre travel experience? Favorite place you've traveled to? Or what's your Adra passion?
1: Yeah, I could say something on all of these, a lot on some. I think I'll just simply go with my Adra passion.
2: Your Adra passion. Yeah. Good choice.
1: Mm Mm-hmm what it is that keeps me going at ADRA because it's, it's a very demanding job, much more demanding than I anticipated, to be honest. Um, so it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of commitment to stick it out. And for me, when I look out on the world and in the news and everything, I see a world that does not know God. They really don't know his true character. And I love Micah 6, 8, what does God ask of you? But to do justly, love, mercy, and to walk humbly with him. And to me, that's who God is. He is just, he is merciful, and he is loving. And that encompasses, for me, Adra's mission. Mm -hmm. And that's what keeps me going, is that through our work of helping people, we are showing the world God's true character, Whereas everywhere else, his true character is being twisted, misunderstood at the least, um, but deliberately twisted at the worst, and this is a way for us to show people who he really is, what he really cares about, and that he really cares about each and every one of us. So I would say that's my Hydra passion.
0: Thank you for sharing your passion. Well, as we come to the close of another podcast, it's question and answer time. This is the time in the podcast where we take your questions. So if you have a question about ADRA, what ADRA is, what we do, how we do it, please write us at Touch. that's all one word, lowercase, Touch at adra.ca. We'd love to hear from you, and if we read your question on air, we'll send you as our gift. Faith to Change the World, the life story of John Howard and how he started ADRA Canada. All right, today's question is, can I send ADRA a box of clothes? I have a lot of clothes that my kids have outgrown or we no longer use, and I would really like to see them being used by people who really need it. Can I send you clothes? That's a question we get asked a lot. How about it? Uh, Can people send their used clothes? Michael, maybe you can start us out on this one. Why is it that we are not able to take clothes and send them to our project sites?
2: So ADRA Canada, we are a a funding office. So we we provide funds to ADRA Uganda or ADRA Cambodia, who who then implement our projects. So here at ADRA Canada, we don't provide anything beyond funding to the offices that we're working with or to the projects that we're working with so we if, if somebody sends us clothes we don't do anything with clothes we're not sending clothes overseas there's a few reasons for this the first one just being the logistics of it 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 costs a lot of money to ship things overseas mm-hmm. and so by sending us clothes you it's actually going to end up costing adra more money to arrange the shipping and and figure out where it's going and then And then who is going to and the distribution once it gets there. It's, It's a lot of money. It's a lot of planning. It's a lot of time that would be spent by the people here in our office that could be spent doing other items more related to our projects.
0: And the great thing about developing a solution where the clothes are bought locally is that it naturally supports the local economy and the people in the local garment industry. You know, in many countries, the ADRA network is teaching people the skill of how to sew. And so by supporting a program where clothes are purchased locally, rather than sending containers of clothes from Canada, we are supporting the very people that we have trained to sew. There's also the issue of clothes that are culturally appropriate. If uh, the clothes are sourced locally, you know that they will follow the styles and Traditions of the local region. <laughs> you know, we hear stories of boxes of high-heeled shoes going to Haiti after the earthquake, or uh, Western-style jeans for ladies ending up in a Muslim village in Africa. Whenever I visit Africa, I often see young girls wearing T-shirts with English phrases and logos on them that would be highly embarrassing and inappropriate to the culture and religion, if only they knew uh, what they said and what the logos represented. How much better if ADRA was able to help people acquire clothes that are locally appropriate?
2: That's part of the reason why we don't distribute clothes from Canada. Or anything from Canada. Um, Or or anything from Canada. We, we, We will source or try to source everything locally whether it be food whether it be clothes whether it be shelter in if the shelter is needed We we try to source everything locally to support the local economy if it can't be sourced locally We will go regionally mm-hmm. if we can't do regionally. We will do um, Next close. Yeah, yeah next mm-hmm. as close as possible mm-hmm. to stay within that region because it ruins the economy of a region If you're dumping free items into a region,
0: that's so true Um, And, you know, there's another way to think about this. By sourcing the food and other items locally, we are actually stimulating the local economy and, you know, providing jobs for people, often during a very difficult time. Uh, For example, a couple of years ago, ADRA Canada had a project where we were helping internally displaced people who were fleeing their homes in Iraq because of ISIS. When they had left their homes, it had been summer and they had fled with just the clothes on their back. And now it was winter and they were freezing in their shelters in need of uh, winter jackets and clothes and and, uh, blankets. And Rather than buy the winter coats and blankets here in Canada and go to the extra costs of shipping, uh, we purchased all of the clothes and blankets locally. While we were there, uh, Sharmila Reed, our Supporter Relations Director, and I went and visited the local factory where we were getting the blankets from. And while I was filming at the factory, Sharmila interviewed the owner, and he told her how this contract from ADRA Canada for the blankets was helping to support and keep on the 60 workers that he had at his factory. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is the, the working philosophy of ADRA now, to to source emergency food, clothing, blankets, you know, shelter kits, hygiene kits, and other supplies locally. It is more economical, it provides food and supplies that are more appropriate to the local culture, and it creates employment opportunities mm-hmm. in the local economy. Uh, so if that- people have clothes and uh, they want to help ADRA Canada, what what would be what would you recommend
2: they do as a close? Have a yard sale and yeah. then give yeah. us the donation? Yeah. that would probably be the best option because yeah. i I know people they they love to give like I said and and it's out of the goodness of their heart, but yeah, Adra can't accept clothes for for the reasons that we listed. Um, so yeah, if you want to get creative, if you want to have a yard sale or an auction or whatever you can think of and and then yeah
0: and you know I think if you had a little sign there where some children helping you at your yard sale and a little box there and telling a little bit about what ADRA does that people would also give a little donation along with with the clothes that they might be buying at Mm -hmm. your yard sale. So it can can add up and you can send in a a nice little gift to ADRA and that money will be used to help a community in Africa or Southeast Asia that really needs the help. Mm. All right. Well, I guess that uh, does it for this episode of ADRA Canada Podcasts. So glad you joined us today.
1: All um, photos and links to things that we've talked about will be available on the website at adra.ca. Just look for the menu item that says podcast and check it out.
2: And also, please feel free to send us all of your questions so that we can answer them on future podcasts. Again, the email address is touch at adra.ca. So that's all one word, touch at adra.ca.
1: And we welcome comments and suggestions as yes. well. yes. <laughs>
2: What
0: would you like to hear about Adra?
2: And if anybody wants to make a ditty.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> he means compose a little song for this podcast. <laughs> but I think he's well on his way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work it out. Okay, thank you, everyone.